0: It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education, education for parents and providers who want the down-low on the low-down. Today, we're talking about what is wrong with the maternal healthcare care system in America. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody, and thanks for joining me, as always. A content notice here, even though I haven't started the podcast yet, I can be sure that the subject of maternal and fetal mortality are going to come up because that is what drives a lot of our decision-making in maternal and fetal medicine. So be prepared for that in this episode. And before we get going, a quick reminder that my online Slash live combo course is now available to you at my website 13 the number moonsbirthwork.com. This class takes my in-person curriculum and turns it into a weekly meeting that's two hours long and offers a Q&A session as well and gives folks sort of an inside look at what's going on in the hospital to hopefully support those who are birthing in the hospital to make really empowered decisions in their births and get the births they want so you can check that out at my website 13moonsbirthwork.com and now let's kick it off today we're talking about the maternal healthcare system in america and kind of what's going on there how did we get here where are we going what's wrong with it what's right with it so the first thing that's important is to just really briefly talk about the history of birth in general and the fact that prior to a couple of hundred years ago birth was not a hospital event it was a physiological event and it was seen that way and it was generally carried out at home and usually the birthing woman would be surrounded by other women who had birthed usually either her family members her mother her grandmothers her sisters or sometimes a midwife We've seen the presence of midwives historically in the Bible, and even before that, midwives mentioned in older texts, so we know that it's probably really the oldest profession, truly, women being with women in birth. What drives a lot of our decision-making in birth is safety and the fear of losing either baby or mother or both. Most of us have somewhere in our family history a horror story of one type or another about someone dying in birth. I know that when I was a child and I asked my great-grandmother about birth, the answer I received was, is birth painful? Women die. And that's not untrue. Women do sometimes die in birth and babies do sometimes die in birth because sometimes things happen, right? That we can't always control. But I think when we're looking at some of these family stories that are sticking around, it's important to dissect what's really going on there so that before we even start to talk about how birth got the way it is today, we acknowledge the way birth used to be. So in my own personal family, my fourth great-grandmother was an indigenous woman, a Native American Cherokee who was taken, as story goes, from the Trail of Tears, married off to a white man, expected to care for his children, and then bear him some more children. His first wife had died. I don't know what of. Um, I do know that this woman, whose name was changed to Polly, and who there is no record of prior to that. No birth certificate, no record of parents, because, of course, her identity was erased she went on to birth children for him and then also die in childbirth now what i think is important about this story is not just that she died but that we look at this from with a critical eye and we think about what happened here first of all we're talking about a woman who was living in a tribe where it was very likely that they had a diet that was you know, sustenance hunting and eating from the land and that sort of thing. She was living with her family, of course, most certainly, and and a community, which is how indigenous folks lived. and then would have been taken from her family, thrust into a situation where she knew who knows if anyone asked to take care of this man's children and then further impregnated and forced to bear more children. And I'm using the term forced. I don't know that it was forced, but let's just be real. Probably not super willingly were women leaving their own families and their tribes and joining white men and being glad about signing up to take care of all of his children. And I could be completely off base about that. But I think it's probably pretty fair to assume. And I've seen this woman in one photograph. And let me just tell you, she does not look like she is okay. Uh, she does not look okay. She does not look happy. She does not look healthy. And she looks uncomfortable. You know, she's wearing farm garb, you know, a big long dress and long sleeves and a high neck. And she probably didn't like that, would be my guess. Uh, I could be wrong. Again, I could be wrong. But The other important thing is she was taken away from her ancestral diet, the way that she and who knows how many generations of people before her had eaten and was thrust into a new way of eating, most likely. Probably not enough food and certainly not enough protein, given the number of children that they had and the financial resources that were available. So... I don't want to suggest that she wanted to die. I just want to suggest that maybe it's not that surprising that she did die and that to take these sort of historical experiences about how people have died in childbirth and to turn this into a wider narrative about birth being scary and dangerous is a false dichotomy, if you will. There are, of course, a lot more things present there than just the simple fact of birth is dangerous. Nutrition, we know now, plays a very important role in maternal health, particularly protein and calcium and iron because these things are important for blood loss. We, in a healthy, normal pregnancy, expect a woman to nearly double her blood volume toward the end of her pregnancy. And if she doesn't, that is cause for concern. And given poor nutrition, that is likely to happen. It's one of the reasons that some of our maternal health outcomes are so bad, because we don't educate people well about nutrition. And because further, uh, depending on socioeconomic status and availability, some people might not have access to appropriate nutrition. So those are important factors to consider and it's also really important to consider that if birth was inherently dangerous and i've mentioned this before and people died so readily as we seem to think they do in our mind then we as human beings would not exist but what you see happening in american history specifically because this is where i live and this is the history i know is that through colonial times and during the times that folks were enslaved in America, you had two common birth providers. You had colonial women that were either actually sort of elected midwives or given that task. These were usually women who themselves had birthed and were wise. Um, Sometimes they were young women who were kind of picked from the community and sent to school because they just needed more hands on deck or you had our black granny midwives who were serving other black women in their communities and the black granny midwives arose out of a necessity right they learned to care for one another through the apprenticeship model shared information with one another and taught the women coming after them the ways to manage certain complications in birth like bleeding using herbs or our hands but playing on that fear of loss, at some point in the 19th century, physicians, as physicians began to rise in number, they were not practically treating women because men didn't really want to be involved in birth and they weren't super interested in that, in that work, which they considered dirty, right? Kind of gross. But once they realized that there was a business here and that if they could convey the message to women that birth at home was unsafe and that the hospital was safer and physicians were safer, that women would move to the hospital. And that was the message that was sent. I think of this on a, on a more simple level um, about shaving. It's silly, but It's true. The company Gillette, the reason why women shave their legs, essentially, is because the company Gillette in the 19, I think, 20s ran a campaign that essentially said men don't like hairy legs. Prior to that, it was totally uncommon for women to be shaving, right? I don't think probably women didn't shave at all. But then all of a sudden, Gillette decided, well, we have razors and what would be a good way to sell some razors if we told women that, Men don't like hairy legs. And guess what? We believe them. So we bought razors and we shaved our legs. And that made sense to us. But I always tell people, whenever someone is making you question your intuition or decision making or, or anything that you're doing, and they stand to benefit from it financially in terms of, if I make this decision, you profit. So I shave my legs, you sell a razor. I give birth in the hospital, the hospital and the physician get paid right to investigate the ways that they benefit because very often what we will find with a critical eye is that the people that benefit the most are not the people who are being told they need to change something but actually the people who are telling them to do the changing hopefully that makes sense so in this case physicians saw this as a business opportunity and essentially ran a smear campaign against midwives saying that homes were dirty places to give birth and midwives were gross they took this further even and required black granny midwives particularly to submit to in-home inspections by the counties that they lived in uh sti testing to see if they had any what they would have called then venereal disease to prove that they were, in fact, as dirty as the doctor said. And then they were given clothes that they were required to wear that were white. And they were given a bag that they were required to carry. And then they were required to give newborns certain medications and so on and so forth to be in compliance and to be able to continue to practice their craft legally, right? To not have any litigation or charges brought against them for practicing. So this is an interesting development because one of the things that happened, if you look at it from a historical standpoint, is that when doctors realized that poor women weren't going to be able to afford the hospital, and government-funded healthcare did not yet exist, they were like, oh, we're just kidding, never mind, midwives can actually deliver babies. So here's the rules you have to follow to deliver the babies, the bag, the clothes, the inspections, the sexual, um, sexually transmitted disease testing. Now you can deliver babies at home, okay. And we'll just take care of the white women. So it's really, really important to look at this from the wider racial perspective too, and to have a really critical eye of how these things came about. Because I can tell you before I studied this, I would never have even thought about it. I would have just gone along to get along because this is what everybody did and picked my OB and gone to my OB and behaved and, Been a good girl and followed instructions and done what i was told because i wanted to have a healthy pregnancy and a living baby but what we actually found when birth moved into the hospital was that our outcomes didn't really improve because we did not yet know about germ theory and we did not yet have vaccines vaccines were discovered in around 1928 but were not available until around world war ii so in the early 1940s which means that people died of infection and one of the ways that women died of infection in hospitals were that physicians would examine cadavers, dead bodies, with bare hands and then take those bare hands and examine women in labor and thereby spreading whatever either infectious disease that the cadaver died from or even just the bacteria presence on, present on the dead body, right? We called this childbed or puerperal fever and no one could figure it out until ignaz Semmelweis was like wait a minute i think there's these little tiny things that we can't see that carry germs and then everyone thought he was crazy until we were able to prove that that was actually true and then we discovered antibiotics to treat it to treat those diseases these are the things that really really transformed birth in america right knowledge about all of the things that prior to the invention of good microscopes we could not see and did not know existed and knowledge about the way certain things can kill other things and thereby cure infection so that is how we got there that's how birth moved into the hospital That's how birth moved into physician care. It was fundamentally a business opportunity. And unfortunately in America, particularly, it has remained a business opportunity. And this doesn't mean that physicians are all greedy or want to be rich or only care about money. But as I always say to my class and my clients, It's very difficult for anyone to be objective in the face of big financial either potential gain or loss. So, in other words, if the way that you birth, the location, the the method, whether it's vaginal or C-section, the interventions you have, and the timing of your birth impacts your physician and the hospital's bottom financial line, Objectivity becomes very difficult. So, from this wide angle view of looking at birth, the biggest problem with birth in America is the amount of money that's involved in it. Because whenever there are large sums of money at stake, people tend to become greedy. And that, the idea of capitalism and The way that our consumerism works is a whole like probably podcast on its own that probably already exists, but it's an important thing to consider. The other important thing to consider is that in our desperation to have living babies and living mothers, regardless of the way we got there, we were willing as women to surrender decision making and power to another individual. This is what I refer to as the cult of the expert. So as a culture over time, our faith in ourselves, in our intuition, in our knowledge, and in our capability to care for ourselves was eroded over time by corporations, companies, people who would benefit from us not trusting ourselves. Right? For every problem, there is a solution. And the solution has a price tag. It's only when you see the thing as a problem that the person who has the solution can profit. So I like to think of Spanx, and I don't like I have no qualms with Sarah Blakely, Blakey. She invented Spanx, and that's great. She solved a problem. But the problem that Sarah Blakey solved with Spanx was that women felt fundamentally like our bodies were not okay the way they were. They needed to be a different shape. And so we would squeeze ourselves like a stuffed sausage into a very tight and uncomfortable garment in order to, quote unquote, look better, right? Problem, solution, profit. Boop, boop, boop problem in birth, we don't want people to die. Solution, let me tell you what to do, profit. And we were happy to give that control away. We were happy to give it to someone else because that meant that not only were we not responsible for the outcome, but we could also blame someone else if we didn't get the outcome we wanted. Well, I went to the doctor and I did what he said and the baby died, so it's his fault. Right. So some of this some of this points to the medical model and physicians and the profitability of that side of thing. And some of it points to human beings in general and our desire to really control outcomes, our discomfort with anything that we cannot absolutely see and understand, our obsession with technology and our obsession with making sure we know how everything is going to end and that there are no surprises this is a really hard thing to fight from an intellectual perspective because it is ingrained in us over generations that if you trust you trust your physician and your physician takes care of you but it's really important for us to remember as birthing people anywhere in the world that physicians are trained in pathology. They are trained in disease process. Their their sweet spot in any specialty is in disease process. Physicians are not trained to sit around and wait. They are not trained to have a watchful eye. They are not trained to be patient. They are trained to take action, to see a problem, and to solve the problem. What this creates though, is what we would call a confirmation bias, which is like the idea that you buy a new car and then all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. When you you are a hammer, everything's a nail. When you are a physician who knows how to fix problems, you are attuned to problems, perhaps even where problems do not exist and thereby can even create problems when there are not problems. And as i have said before and will say again and again and again birth is best left alone refer to episode four about birth physiology to learn why birth is best left alone the hormones in our body that have created this symphony which results in labor and birth have been perfected to be efficient and safe and to necessarily require certain things to function things like privacy and safety and when our privacy and our safety is infringed upon or in question those hormones cannot function like they are meant to and as i have said many times even though it's very useful to have scientific studies And to look at that data and to process those numbers, it's even more valuable to look at these experiences through a big, wide perspective. And to see that our outcomes, when we're talking about birth outside the hospital setting or even birth inside the hospital setting that is physiological, are better than those in the hospital. And physicians often argue that the reason our outcomes in the hospital are worse when they are worse is because the health of our culture and our society and pregnant women at large is worse. And that is true to a degree. Our diets are not great as a whole. We probably definitely mostly don't eat like we should. But... It should not be forgotten that pregnant women are very motivated to take care of their babies, and it's been my experience that most women, when they are told the necessity of things like protein in their diet and calcium in their diet and making sure they have enough salt, that they will implement those suggestions without question. When you say to them, "The really, you know, it's really important to eat 75 to 100 grams of protein a day." They will. Unfortunately, physicians don't tell people this, and it's probably not because physicians don't know this. They certainly must know. It might be because they're too busy to spend that much time in a prenatal visit or because it doesn't really matter to them because preventing preeclampsia isn't that big of a deal, because if you get preeclampsia, they just do a C-section. And statistically, from their perspective, as long as you have a living baby, you are happy and not likely to file a lawsuit against them. And that's where we get to the other thing that's really wrong with healthcare, maternal healthcare, and really all healthcare in America. We are a highly litigious nation that is apt to file a lawsuit anytime we feel that we have been in any way wronged. and Those lawsuits can at times be very worthwhile and necessary and also can at times be rather frivolous, if you will. I have sat on both logical and illogical lawsuit cases and the result is the same. Most of the time, if someone files a lawsuit against a physician or a hospital, the hospital or the physician's malpractice company, insurance company, will settle with the person filing the lawsuit. Because taking the case to court and the cost of legal defense legal expenses and being out of work for the physician is too much to bear. That accompanied with the fact that physicians malpractice insurance in a large city in America is around $150,000 a year and goes up should that physician have a lawsuit filed against them so much of what our physicians have learned to do defensively is to practice in a way that avoids litigation which is to make friends with you and be really nice to you to make sure that you like them and to if there is any potential that something might go even remotely sideways to deliver your baby by c-section because studies show that you will almost always thank your doctor for saving your baby's life not be angry at him because he took you to an unnecessary c-section even if it was unnecessary I am grateful for the cynicism that I have built in me after working within the system because it allows me a really critical eye. And this is not physician bashing. Doctors, I believe, do fundamentally want to do good. And most of them, I think, go into medicine for that reason. They do really want to make a difference. But what happens when they get there is they discover that making a difference is very difficult within the system. That's what happened to me as a nurse. I became a nurse in labor and delivery with the intention of becoming a certified nurse midwife because I felt that I would best serve women inside the system and helping them achieve the births they wanted. But what you discover when you're in that system is that you are up against a lot of legal paperwork, lawyers, policies, and procedures that are designed to protect the physician and hospital, and not always the patient. It's not that those things aren't, it's not that those things are dangerous necessarily for our patients. It's not that they're going to put someone in danger. But it is that even if those interventions or recommendations result. In an operative delivery that we're going to take that as a win because you're going to be happy about it and i have seen c-sections more than a few times that were completely preventable that were literally caused by the administration of pitocin and subsequent fetal distress due to contractions that the baby really couldn't handle because they probably, A, weren't mature enough to handle them, or B, weren't mature enough or had enough of an oxygen reservoir to manage them at the strength and length that Pitocin brings them on. And then someone be taken to an urgent or emergency C-section, and then afterward, thank their doctor for saving their baby's life. The doctor would never disclose to the client that that C-section was avoidable because such a disclosure would be an admission of guilt and thereby make them subject to potential litigation. So is that the physician's fault? You know, yes and no. The number one thing that physicians are sued for in America right now Uh, is a shoulder dystocia. And this is when the baby is being born. And as the baby is emerging, the head comes out and the baby's shoulders need to turn to navigate the pelvic outlet. If the baby cannot find the appropriate position or is unable to turn and that shoulder gets hung up on the front part of the pubic bone, then there have to be some necessary actions taken to release that. The irony of this complication is that in a birth that is occurring where mother is unmedicated, having gone into labor on her own and naturally, upright, mobile, and does not have her pushing directed and does not have anyone's hands on the head of her baby, it is unlikely, highly unlikely, that a dystocia will occur. And when one does in those situations, and I personally had one with my fifth baby, the mother is really the person best equipped to figure out how she needs to change her position to help her baby navigate the pelvis and will usually innately assume a position that changes the pelvic diameter or angle to help facilitate the baby's rotation and delivery. And then in the rare situations where that doesn't work then you have a skilled practitioner nearby who can utilize their hands to either press above the mother's pubic bone to push the shoulder down or reach fingers in and sort of push the baby's shoulder over or any number of other maneuvers that exist to release the baby the reason that this is a problem Is that if you pull on the baby's head as the baby is being born and you pull hard enough with that shoulder wedged under the pubic bone there can be damage that occurs to the brachial plexus nerve which runs down the side of your shoulder and it can cause either temporary or permanent paralysis to whichever side is affected and that's what physicians get sued for and in those cases and all three cases that I've sat on have all been dystocia cases. In those cases, there will invariably be a settlement and it will invariably be several million dollars usually. Now something that's really important to consider here is our own culpability as birthing people. Let me offer an example to you. I'm not even talking about inductions and we know uh, that inductions for big babies to try to prevent dystocias actually do not have that impact. They actually do not have better outcomes. Their outcomes are worse. And we talked about that in the physiology episode where we're talking about the importance of relaxing. But from the other side of the pers- perspective of the mother, if the mother opts for an epidural in labor for pain management, and they are readily available, and like I say, they are like water in the desert, when you are uncomfortable and everyone that comes in your room is asking you if you want one, you are likely to say yes. When you are given the risks of an epidural, you are told mostly just that there's a potential a small risk for a spinal headache. And that would occur if the epidural, if the needle punctured and went through the dura and created a leak in your spinal fluid which would create a negative pressure situation and causes a very severe headache. And the solution to those, which honestly very rarely even occur, is what we call a blood patch, where they take some of your blood, put it back into that space, and it creates a bit of like a scab. And then you have to lay flat for a while while your body sort of rebalances your cerebral spinal fluid and that headache resolves. What you are not told when you get an epidural is that your pelvic floor is essentially paralyzed. And as your baby is descending into the pelvis and through the birth canal, the pelvic floor sort of cradles the baby's head like a bowl and helps create a sort of counter pressure against which the baby pushes with their feet at the top of the uterus and comes down. And it's an important part of navigation of the birth canal. So if you do not have those muscles engaged because of an epidural, they can't do their job. And then furthermore, you are on your back almost always when you have an epidural pushing, which means that you are already in a position that is not conducive to the best kind of delivery because we know that upright is best not just for pelvic floor health, but for aid and descent of the baby. Secondarily, because you can't feel what you're doing, you're having your pushing directed, which is, also creates an added risk factor. Because you can't feel your baby and because you are not able to listen to your body's pushing cues. And even further than that, the next the next potential consequence there is that should a dystocia arise, mother is essentially paralyzed and unable to change positions. So even if she were able to feel her baby in her body and know that she needed to, say, turn from her side to her hands and knees, she would not be able to. So you are relying upon the care providers in the room to do the work of releasing the baby for you. Any midwife or care provider who attends births that are physiological and undisturbed will tell you that dystocias in those situations are very, very rare. My midwife that caught my fifth baby when we went back over our birth and talked about it, she'd been a midwife for 40 years when she caught my baby and in 40 years she had two dystocias in 40 years of delivering babies I have seen many in the hospital and I'm pretty certain that the reason that they happen is sort of a snowball effect of all of these potential interventions right starting with an induction So you're being asked, you're asking your baby and you're being asked to begin labor before your body and your baby are likely ready for it. Management of pain, utilizing epidural anesthesia, immobility due to epidural anesthesia, and lack of sensation, plus the inability to push with the urge to push. And this conversation around epidurals is its own whole topic because epidurals are very very common in the united states they are the most common type of discomfort management and they are readily available in most hospitals but most women do not actually understand the full implication of an epidural and i say this to you as a person who has had an epidural not as a person who judges women for getting epidurals in fact what i say to clients very often who have said i want a natural birth and then they end up getting an epidural is that it's really important for us as women to realize that we are not set up for success in this situation fear increases tension and tension increases pain the hospital incites fear in most people because it is not a place we associate with birth it's a place we associate with illness on a subconscious level which means going in there from the very beginning makes us fearful which would increase our pain levels right so that's the first thing the second thing is we don't know about birth physiology most of us don't understand what's happening in the body really on a hormonal or an anatomical level and once we do understand and we understand the really beautiful symphony that exists there we can see it for how important and vital it is to the process overall and how important it is to leave that physiology alone so that the body can do what the body knows innately how to do without intervention or interruption But this would require the hospital to not intervene or interrupt. And they're not comfortable not doing that because there is always the potential that if they don't intervene or interrupt and something goes wrong, that again, we're back to litigation now. You're going to sue them. And they have to be mindful of that potential at all times. This is what drives continuous fetal monitoring in the hospital the fact that if we have your baby's heart rate on a monitor all the time, you can never say at any point, should your baby come out and have a developmental delay or autism or cerebral palsy or any other thing that your baby was hypoxic in labor and that it was the hospital's fault that your baby was hypoxic in labor, deprived of oxygen. Because look, we have this strip and it shows that the fetal heart rate was stable for the entire course of labor. That's what drives those monitoring protocols. Right? So. To sort of put this all together, we exist within a system that is founded on the assumption that the hospital is safer than any other place, which we know it's not. And that physicians know better about birth than mothers, which is also not true. And that the things that we do in labor to change the course of labor interventions, including anything from breaking your water, administering Pitocin, speeding up, slowing down, administering an epidural, those interventions impact our physiology, which impacts our outcomes for the worse. And I do this work because I believe that the key to making really good decisions is having all of the information. And we don't. We don't have it because it's either not readily available or we don't seek it out and as much of a as as much as it sounds like it's a conspiracy the people who benefit in this business don't want you to have that information because the more information you have the more questions you are likely to ask and the more difficult that makes their job What is easiest for the hospital is if you walk into triage and from the moment you enter the hospital, you do everything they say and you do not question anything. And that is what the majority of people do to their detriment. But they really don't know it's to their detriment because who is going to tell you that those decisions can be harmful if the people who are pushing you to make those decisions benefit one way or another. You have to have an objective third party to rely on and to ask questions of. You have to have someone that has seen birth outside the hospital that has witnessed physiological birth and most physicians haven't because that's not how they're trained. They're trained in large inner city hospitals most often so that they can get a lot of experience in the really scary stuff and they need that experience because when someone comes in having a preeclamptic seizure or an eclamptic seizure, because they've now gone into full-blown eclampsia, the physician needs to know how to act quickly to solve that problem and save that woman and that baby's life. That is what physicians need to do. They don't really belong in the room in an uncomplicated pregnancy. They don't have any purpose there, and they're more likely to make a mess. And in other countries, We'll use the uk as an example and the uk is flawed in its own ways but in in countries like the uk where medicine is socialized women who have healthy uncomplicated pregnancies don't see an obstetrician at all you only see an obstetrician if you have a problem because that's what obstetricians know how to do is problems and what midwives know how to do is normal physiological birth and recognize a problem and say this is out of my scope of capability so it's time to transfer to the hospital The gift of a midwife is she is so accustomed to normal and the wide range of normal that she can easily spot abnormal. And the gift of the physician is their eye for abnormal is very keen because it's what they're most used to seeing. So they can recognize and treat abnormal very quickly when minutes truly count. But it's really important to remember that in a normal physiological birth, There are very rarely events that turn into an emergency. Because birth left alone just proceeds as it's meant to. And the things that we're most afraid of, like women bleeding and babies dying, really don't happen that often when you just let birth do what birth knows how to do. And then we've circled right back around to fear and the idea that we can somehow prevent poor outcomes and pain and as someone who worked in hospice again and worked with babies who died i can tell you that if we were truly that powerful to be able to prevent babies dying and women dying then babies would never die Mothers would never die. Fathers would never die. Everyone would live to be old, right? We would all live to be 120, and then we would die. But that's not the truth. The truth is we are not in charge. We are not in charge. All we can do is take the best care of ourselves we can and be the most educated we can and take that into our decision-making to make the best choices. I don't think that the current system Is revivable. I think that the answer to it is going to have to be to reduce it to rubble and start over. And one of the first things we have to do to get there is to talk to each other about birth being normal and natural. Because when we hear horror stories and we don't hear the story behind the horror story, how did that person get to that place? We are not operating with a full set of information. I had a woman reach out to me once that had a fourth degree tear to her bottom. Fourth degree tear means you tear all the way through your anal sphincter. And she said, how did, why did that happen? And if that had happened at home, I would have died. Okay, so let's look at how that happened. And what's the first question I asked her? Were you induced? Yes. Well, we already know from our physiology episode that our relaxing levels peak right before our labor begins, which makes not just our bones and ligaments, but also all of our tissues stretchier. So that's the first thing. Question two, did you push on your back? Yes. Okay, so we already know that the best outcomes for our pelvic floor in terms of pushing are to be upright, undirected, and no hands in the vagina. Third question, did a doctor have their hands in your vagina when you were pushing? Yes. Three strikes, and you've got a fourth-degree vaginal tear. Are fourth-degree vaginal tears terrifying? Absolutely. Are they common? No. Do they happen in upright, physiological, unmanaged pushing stages? Almost never. Almost never. Because if it really did happen, if it really was that much of a risk, then we'd be dead but all that another pregnant mother has to hear is that story from that mom who used the term my whole vagina exploded to be now subsequently terrified of the idea of her vagina exploding so we have to be mindful of what we're saying when we're talking about birth and how we're quantifying our experiences when i teach my classes i tell people repeatedly. I had an 11-pound baby in my kitchen with no intervention and an intact perineum. Your pelvis is not too small. If your physician is telling you that, it's because they're worried about dystocia because they're worried about being sued. Your baby is not too big. Unless you have a disease process like unmanaged diabetes, your body is not going to grow a baby that you can't birth. And If no one is telling you how to push, when to push, and how long to push, and you are in charge of your pushing, you are not going to explode your vagina. Instead of the terror stories, which are the ones that people most like to share because they are the most shocking, what if instead we shared shockingly positive stories? And if the women who are birthing at home, which is currently only about 1% of our population, were talking about how good their home births were, how much better of an experience they were. And of course, you are not without risk in birth in any location because birth is only as safe as life. And life sometimes doesn't go the way we expect. There's a really beautiful line in the beginning of the book When Things Fall Apart by the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron that says you can, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, you can believe that you are in charge and the universe will burn your house down. And I have read this book many times in my life during many different transformational circumstances. And I read it again after my own house burned down about a year and a half ago. And that line slapped me in the face because I'd read that book A dozen times and had never truly picked up on that line until the universe burned my house down control is an illusion and the sooner that we recognize it as the illusion that it is and let go of that illusion the sooner we are free i hope you found this episode helpful and happy birthday information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice birth is not a medical event